Uh, This morning, we're going to see a reversal for the ages. Now, if you are just joining us, we're several weeks into a series of the book of Esther, so I'll do a very quick recap. If you have been uh, here, just remember with me, King Ahaz, there are only four main characters in this whole book. King Ahasuerus is the king of Persia. He's more powerful than any previous king in history. His Greek name was Xerxes. His Persian name that scripture uses is Ahasuerus. And then after a long audition process, we're introduced to a young, beautiful woman named Esther who is chosen to be uh, Ahasuerus' new queen. Now, in all honesty, Esther really shouldn't be in Persia Unbeknownst to everyone around her, including her new husband, the king, she is a Jew. And and because of that, she really should be in Jerusalem, the city of God's people. But she's been raised in Persia by her much older cousin, Mordecai, who's also a Jew, who at this point in the story, chapter 6, he's only recently revealed his ethnicity. And in Persia, that the time of this story is around mid-4th century B.C. This is when all this took place. And in Persia at this time, you could worship any god you wanted, so long as you didn't claim to worship the only god or the best god. And this is called pluralism. Uh, This is exactly, in fact, what the Jews were facing then in Persia and what Christians are being faced with in America today. Now back to the story. So, So Mordecai, the third character in this story, he works for the king Ahasuerus. He respects and he supports the king. And and when he overhears a plot to to kill the king, Mordecai reports it to his younger cousin, who's now queen, Queen Esther, and the king is saved. And then in comes the fourth and final main character, Haman. Haman is the king's right-hand man, and he hates Mordecai because Mordecai refuses to bow to him, to Haman. And because Mordecai is a Jew and... Haman hates Mordecai, therefore Haman hates all of the Jews, and and he decrees that all Jews living in Persia should be put to death in 11 months. Now, this would have been hundreds of thousands of men and women and children we're talking about. But last week, uh, Pastor Ronnie was here, and we saw in the passage in chapter 5, we saw Haman's impatience, right? Haman couldn't wait for 11 more months to to watch Mordecai and all the Jews die. He just wants Mordecai to be dead already. And so instead of waiting, he listens to the, Haman listens to the advice of his wife and he, he constructs this 75 foot pole in his yard, which he plans to use to impale Mordecai. It's dark. But, but before Haman can do this, before Haman can execute Mordecai, he needs to first get the king's approval. And so that was like a three-minute just overview. That's where we are in the story so far. So if you will, pick up your Bibles and follow along with me as I read, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? 
Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And let the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set and let robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. (laughs) So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him while they were yet talking with him the king's units arrived and hurried to bring haman to the feast and that esther had prepared so the king and haman went into feast with queen esther and on the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast the king again said to esther what is your wish queen esther it shall be granted you and what is your request even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. 
And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Wow, Lord. Your word is amazing. What a reversal of story, of plot. You surely are a God who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Lord, encourage our hearts. Conform us to Christ's image. Today we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2010, I was working as a worship pastor for our church in Newark in the, in the town that we grew up in. And on October 27th, 2010, I wasn't in the building, but our children's director was. She was working at the copy machine just like she did every Wednesday preparing the Sunday lesson. And I forget what she said it was, but something unusual happened in the other room that caused her to get up from the copy desk where she was working and go check it out. And just as she left the room, a conversion van loaded with a pipe bomb came crashing through the wall of our copy room. It was an attack. The driver was upset that his kids were spending so much time at our church with their mom. The bomb, which was later to be discovered as active, as real, mysteriously did not detonate. And our children's director, because of this inexplicable distraction that caused her to get up from her seat and to go into the other room, our children's director, she was shaken, but she was perfectly unharmed. Now the, you know, 10 TV eyewitness news, the Columbus news, they had a heyday with all of the headlines. Was this a matter of chance? Was it an act of God? Friends, we know where the news crews stand on a question like that, but you guys, the the God of the Bible doesn't leave anything to chance. Not the steps that we take each day, not even the roll of the dice is left to chance, according to Proverbs 16. The Bible tells us that in no uncertain terms, God is utterly sovereign and utterly in control of all things at all times. Sometimes it's with an active hand and sometimes with a passive hand. God is unapologetically guiding every moment of history according to his purposes for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. Nothing is unknown to our God. Nothing is off limits and even what Satan intends for evil, God intends for good. We see this in today's passage, at least at the beginning, that unravels the whole plot. We see that even a bad night's sleep is a tool in the hand of a sovereign God who is committed to accomplishing his purposes on the earth. This is what we see in 
chapters 6 and 7. Now here's my three-point outline if you're a note-taker. This morning we're going to look at, number one, a restless king. Number two, a remembered obedience. And number three, a radical reversal. And for the rest of our time, we will be underneath one of those points. Let's start with number one. So it was a seemingly random distraction that spared the life of our children's ministry director, right? And it's here, a seemingly random night of restlessness that shifts the entire plot of this book. Verse 1, King Ahasuerus cannot sleep. Who can resonate with this? What an easily applicable verse, right? When you're young with kids, your body can sleep, but your kids won't let you. When you're older, your kids prefer you to be asleep, but your body won't let you, right? It is a vicious cycle. Well, Ahasuerus here in verse 1 cannot sleep, and like many of us, he probably chalks it up to chance. It's just sleeplessness after all. It's just another day in the life. Certainly, God is busying himself with other things, right? Wrong. Instead of flipping on the TV, because this is mid-4th century Persia, B.C., he wakes up one of his attendants. I'm sure his attendant was very thankful. Get out of bed, and I want you to read me a really long story. It would have been a story that lasts the entire night, A story that was mainly about Ahasuerus, how narcissistic of him, but also it's a story, it's the Chronicles. It was every other memorable deed that had been recorded throughout Persia. Now, why in the king's restlessness does he reach for the royal history book when he has every type of food, booze, and woman that he could possibly desire, every form of entertainment available to the greatest superpower on the planet. Why does he reach for a history book? Only God knows. We can definitively say that. God only knows. But we do know from Proverbs 21, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. What you and I need to understand about this seemingly insignificant night of sleeplessness in verse 1, what you and I ought to see as tremendously good news this morning is that God is not in heaven looking down upon the earth with his fingers crossed hoping that things turn out the way he planned. God is not on his heavenly throne hoping That Ahasuerus will read the history book so that Mordecai can be recognized, so that Haman's plan is deterred, so that the Jews are spared from annihilation. God is on his heavenly throne in verse 1, ensuring that Ahasuerus will read the history book so that Mordecai is recognized, so that Haman's plan is deterred, so that the Jews are spared from annihilation. And if you don't believe me, just ask Zeresh, Haman's wife. She knows that God's behind this in chapter 6, verse 13. If Mordecai, if Mordecai is one of the Jews, you're falling to this man. P.S. It was Zeresh and uh, uh, Haman's buddies who who encouraged him to oppose Mordecai in the first place. Do we see the flippity-floppity that's going on here? Brothers and sisters, here's what I... This is, this, is, this is the entire first point. 
Do we have this confidence? Do you right now in real time on the plastic chair on which you're seating, do you, sitting, do you have this confidence that God has not left us to some cosmic game of chance? Do you have this confidence that even the, good, the, even the bad events of your life are sovereignly orchestrated by a gracious conductor who is in the beauty of bringing beauty from the ashes that the devil is trying to produce? Do you have this confidence that even the restless seasons of your life, I mean, I'm talking seasons of strife, of pain, Do you have this confidence that somehow in the mysterious realm of God's wisdom and knowledge, somehow he is allowing these things not, in fact, because he hates you or he doesn't care, just the opposite. If you are one of his children, bought, sought, and brought near by the blood of Jesus, you need to know that the restless seasons of your life are being allowed by God, not because he hates you, but because he loves you so much And cares so much that he uses even what Satan intends for evil to keep you near to himself. Sickness, disease, hardship, failure. Ask yourself this. What bitterness of life are you facing this morning? It is not random. It is not meaningless. God uses life's bitternesses to draw us into the sweetness of His grace. Do you have this confidence? I'm not trying to be callous. Many of us are facing genuine trial and hardship. I've said this and I'll say it again just to cover our bases. God is not the first cause of these evils. But God is sovereign over the one who is trying to spread out these evils. And he works somehow all of these things for his glory and our good. Do we have this confidence that even a bad night's sleep is a tool in the hand of a God, our God, to bring about his sovereign purposes? And what we see in this passage, in the remainder of this passage, is that God's sovereign purposes include the radical reversal of the proud and the humble. The radical reversal of the wicked and the righteous. Point number two, a remembered obedience. This is going to be pretty short. I shortened this because I don't think um, it, it needs uh, kind of bared out as much. I, we've already looked at this. I'll, I'll just continue. Um, all night... So the king has listened. He has listened to the reading of the royal history book. We're back in the text. In verse 2, he finally gets, the reader finally gets to the part about Mordecai saving the king's life. Remember this from back in chapter 2? When Mordecai foiled the assassination plot of Big Ben and Teresh and and the whole thing was recorded in the book of the Chronicles and then it seemingly went forgotten. Do you remember that? We talked that week when we, were, when we were looking at that chapter, we talked about the moments in our lives when obedience seems insignificant, right? Remember that? When honoring God and fighting sin and loving our neighbor seems to be going nowhere. We feel like we're trying to be faithful to doing what God would have us. We don't feel any further along in our faith and we're discouraged. 
in the same way that Mordecai's obedience to Ahasuerus felt overlooked at the time. Our obedience to God can sometimes feel overlooked, like he has forgotten us, like our efforts have been lost in the book of the Chronicles. In verse 2, Ahasuerus needs to be reminded of Mordecai's obedience. But we need to be reminded this morning that our God doesn't need an attendant to remind him of our memorable, memorable deeds because he is El Ra'i, which in Hebrew means the God who sees. Hebrews 6.10 For our God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name. Philippians 2, it is actually impossible for God to overlook your obedient work because he is the one who's working obedience into you in the first place. So that means this, and we're going to close up point number two. It's a brief one. Every time, brother, you run from pornography, every time you tell the truth instead of bending it, flexing it, being just slightly dishonest to change the course of what's happening. Every time you abstain from gossip, every time you refrain from drinking or eating too much, every time, husbands, that you sacrifice for your wife, every time, wives, that you respect your husband, every time you love your enemy, it is impossible for God not to notice. Because it is God who is working that obedience into you for his good pleasure and your good flourishing. We are not saved by our obedient works. We are saved because of Jesus' obedient work. And as a result, we joyfully desire to follow suit and obey. In Esther chapter 6... It is no fluke chance that the king has been awake all night. I almost uh, sarcastically named this sermon Sleepless in Susa. (laughs) It is not a chance. It's not just chance that the king has been awake all night. You guys, God is ensuring the remembrance of Mordecai's work and his timing is none other than miraculous because as we see in verse 4, just as the king is remembering Mordecai's loyalty, who's waiting outside to seek approval for Mordecai's execution? Haman. And so begins, point number three, a radical reversal. The glass slipper moment of this story that spurs a dramatic shift. The king invites Haman in, but before Haman can ask for approval, the king asks Haman in verse 6, What should be done to a man whom the king wishes to honor? And, the next word, In all of Haman's self-gratifying, narcissistic ego, Haman said to himself, look right there in the second half of verse 6, because we can learn something from this. That one sentence, and Haman said to himself, you guys, this never goes well. 
When we say things to ourselves, when we put our trust in our own advice, it never goes well. Go through the Psalms, go through the Proverbs, count how many times God warns the fool, says to himself. The fool thinks to himself. I mean, after all, was it not Adam and Eve, after being tempted by the serpent, they thought to themselves, well, the fruit looks actually pretty tasty, doesn't it? And it got us into this whole debacle. And we, would have, we wouldn't have done anything differently. Brothers and sisters, let us not be Christians, people who trust our own advice. I know that this seems, you know, maybe I'm making a bigger point out of that one thing, but but goodness, this is why we have the Bible. This is why we have community groups who are rallied around the Bible to save us from the folly of leaning on our own understanding. Look, if you've got a decision to make today or this week, I almost don't even care what it is. Should we buy another TV? There's there's an example of of a decision to make. Most of us wouldn't think anything of it. Right? If you're facing a difficult situation right now, I shouldn't even say if. You're facing a difficult situation right now, you. If you're trying to discern the right thing to do, do not be the only person you're listening to. Sit down with a gospel friend who will point you to God's word, sit down with your CG leader, sit down with one of your pastors, and and set up a little discernment team. In the body of Christ, we needn't be saying anything to ourselves. Now Haman here, he already has everything he could possibly want. While the king is asking him, you know, what should be done to a man who, you know, the the king delights to honor? Haman right here in this part of this, he has everything he could possibly want. He has money, he has power, privilege, possessions, you name it. But the one thing that Haman does not have is the experience of being paraded through the city streets, wearing the king's robe, riding the king's horse, donning the king's praise... And this request, what he says, what he suggests would be a fitting reward, this is like a virtually unheard of mega honor. And blinded by his own self-interest and leaning on his own understanding, Haman thinks the king is preparing this honor for him. And so this is what he suggests. Put a kingly robe on him. Put a crown on his head. Let him ride the kingly horse and let somebody toot the horn and and shout out how awesome this guy is through the streets of Susa. And at Haman's suggestion, the king replies in verse 10. I love this. Okay, hurry. Take the robes and the horse as you have said and do all of this to Mordecai. He's sitting at the king's gate, just plugging away, data entry, right? He says, Haman, leave out nothing that you've mentioned. Like every last detail of this glorious honor that you've dreamed up do it all to mordecai can you can you imagine what haman looked like in this moment i love this whoever exalts himself 
will be humbled. Man, God really puts his money where his mouth is when he says that he opposes the proud. And it got me thinking, and it has me thinking even right now, how many of my dreams and my desires and my aspirations, when I'm really honest, how many are really no different than Haman's? For years, while I was a musician, I told the Lord that if he would just give me a major record deal and a full tour schedule, I would honor him from the stage. I was convinced that my desire for influence, that kind of influence, was righteous. But in reality, I wanted the exact same thing as Haman. I wanted to be adorned with a royal robe. I wanted to be celebrated and recognized. And here's the word that is just so... I wanted to be worshipped. Pastor Ronnie from last Sunday was right. I am Haman. After leading Mordecai's parade, which had to have felt like an eternity to Haman, it had to have felt like an eternity. Haman returns home, feeling a lot like Cinderella's stepmother, disgraced, humiliated, angry. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, Haman's wife and friends, who just a day earlier helped him to build a 75-foot gallows in the yard, all of a sudden, they sense a change in the wind, don't they? A radical reversal has come. In verse 14, they're conversing together in the defeat of the moment. The king's eunuchs arrive. Remember, eunuchs were men who were castrated because they worked close to the, the, to the, to the queen and, and the harem. The king's eunuchs arrive to rush Haman to Esther's second feast, right? Apparently, Haman and all of his sulking with his wife and his friends, he had lost track of time. He's going to be late. They're rushing him. Now, remember, it's at this feast. This is the second feast. It's at this feast that Esther is planning to ask for the king's help in rescuing her and the Jews from Haman's evil plan. And after they finish eating, that's exactly what we see in chapter 7, verse 3. She pleads with a hazardous, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king. Do you hear the calm respect in her voice? I just wish I could be that settled in a moment of crisis. She says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, let my life be granted to me for my wish. She doesn't ask for half the kingdom. She doesn't ask for riches. She asks that her life be spared. Let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. Now right here, Haman's ears had to have perked up. Because he hears the exact words of his decree. 
that he wrote four days prior, destroyed, killed, annihilated? Yep, that's the decree that was issued against Mordecai and his people, the Jews. And then there had to have been, while he's sipping his wine, this oh no moment. Queen Esther is a Jew? Remember, it was secret until now. Wait a minute, wait a minute, we're Haman. The king's favorite wife is a Jew? As Haman sits across the table, still licking the wounds from Mordecai's parade, he realizes what happens, what has happened, and what, what this must look like. The decree that he convinced the king to sign will mean no less than the execution of the queen. Ahasuerus jumps to his feet. It's like the first moment of being a good husband that we've witnessed in this man. He asks Esther the identity of the man who has threatened her. And picture it. Verse 6 of chapter 7. Picture just point. A foe and an enemy. This wicked Haman. And in the interest of time... I need to keep this just a bit short. Ahasuerus leaves the table to think. Haman stays to plead for his wife, ends up getting a little too close to the queen, and Ahasuerus returns, and it is the last straw. The wicked Haman is hung on the very gallows he'd prepared for Mordecai. Instead of being lifted high in a parade, he was lifted high on a 75-foot pole, pointed at the end, that would have either been forced up through his mouth and into his head, or laid flat on it and just slunk all the way down 75 feet. And it was in his own yard, in front of his wife. A radical, a radical reversal. Our God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, his giving grace to the humble is really good news for the Mordecai moments of my life. The Cinderella moments. The fact that he gives grace to the humble is really good news when we are walking, if you will, like Mordecai in this chapter... When we truly are the underdog, when we truly are being oppressed and slandered and betrayed and mocked and persecuted, there is great comfort in knowing that God opposes those who oppose his people. We saw in our call to worship this morning. God will justly defend the defenseless. He will uphold his people with the might of his right hand, and he will fulfill his purposes for them. This is what, in part, the Jews were to take away from this story. The ancient Jews. And this is, in part, what we are to take away from this story. But there's another angle that we need to look at and consider before we close. The fact that our God opposes the proud is great news in our Mordecai moments. But what about our Haman moments? 
which, if I'm honest, are much more common than my Mordecai moments. And let me ask you these questions. Who is at the center of most of your dreams? Who is at the center of most of your desires and goals? Who is at the center of most of your decisions and financial planning? Who is at the center of most of your schedule, the things you give your time to? Who is at the center of your motivations? And we'll ask the question this way too. If your life, church, were a parade, who would be the grand marshal? Who would truly wear the robe and the crown? And I'll tell you my answer me this is what is wrong with the world that if you can relate to my answer that means there's 8 billion people on this planet clamoring to be the grand marshal of life's parade but there is only one parade And there is only one Grand Marshal. When the sinless Son of God came into the world, Jesus Christ deserved the kind of parade that would would make Macy's look like a funeral procession. That's the kind of parade He deserved. Perfect in meekness and humility, Despite being the creator of the universe, if if there was anyone in history who deserved a royal robe and crown while on earth, it was Jesus. But the whole world was already clamoring for position as grand marshal. Because since the garden, we had all already turned our backs to the only one who's truly worthy of that position. And so instead of a horse to ride on, we gave him a cross to carry. Instead of a robe to wear, we stripped him naked. Instead of a crown of jewels, we adorned him with a crown of thorns. Instead of a city square, we paraded him to the outskirts, the place of criminals and lepers. And in the greatest reversal the world has ever known, a much better reversal than even the one that we've witnessed in Esther's chapter chapters 6 and 7 a better reversal than that of Haman and Mordecai Jesus the humble offered his life in place of the proud and so as we've been traveling through the book of Esther if you're like me and to your horror you see more of Haman in yourself than Mordecai. The bad news is that like Haman and like me, you deserve to be hung on a gallows. The Bible is explicit. God is holy and righteous and the wages of sin is death. In fact, the wrath of God is being stored up against those who continue to proudly oppose him. But, 
there is still good news even for those of us who feel that Haman is the predominant character of our lives. Because 2,000 years ago, God the Son was hung on the gallows, so to speak, for sinners. In so doing, I love the ironic language, the last verse of our passage, and the wrath of the king abated. It's how providential that it was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that abated the wrath of God for his people. If you are the grand marshal of your life and you are seeing just how unappealing that role actually is, um, I would invite you consider the actual grand marshal of the parade. Jesus, receive his grace as he became our proud sin. And he laid down on a cross and was sacrificed, risen, so that he could then in fact impute his very righteousness to those who come to him by faith. That is our hope. That is our salvation. Praise the Lord for that.